Father, we thank you that each and every day is new and fresh, a gift from you. And we thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness that you have been or that you have demonstrated to us and for the faithfulness you have built into us, that you have developed in us. Lord, I pray that that faithfulness will deepen. And as we study the life of this man, Moses, a man whom, uh, who was in like manner as we are, just as the scripture speaks of Elijah, certainly it was true of Moses. And so, Father, may we recognize that as we look at the life of this man and what you did through him and his response, that uh, uh, we can expect that you will do for us and expect from us the same. Lord, may we be faithful. May we be trusting. May our lives truly be the example you want us to be to those who are near to us and those who surround us in the workplace, at home, wherever we may be. Now, Father, we ask for your, your presence during this hour. We pray for your blessing uh, throughout our Sunday school today in each class. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 19th chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19. We are in this particular chapter looking at the beginning of Moses' encounter with God Almighty. I'd like to read the first six verses to begin with. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. The third month of the Exodus. The people are leaving from Rephidim, and they're traveling apparently a relatively short distance. Now, Nobody can absolutely sure, for sure today point to exactly where Rephidim was. But according to the traditional route, Rephidim would have been maybe 20 miles or so from the plain there south of the mountain of Sinai. When they arrived at this spot, this, this large plain immediately south uh, of the mountain which has been called Sinai, they settled in there and would remain there for nearly a year. Now when we look back over what the travel has been over these past oh, few months, two months actually, they didn't stay very long in any one place, but now they're going to be encamped for nearly a full year at the base of Mount Sinai. And the reason, of course, was that it would take nearly a year for the law and the liturgy to be recorded as you find it in the second half of the book of Exodus, and we'll be looking at it as we go further through the book, and through the book of Leviticus, for it to be received, for it to be written down, for it to be taught to the people. And then, of course, also we know 
uh, God instructed them to build a tabernacle and to make all the implements that would go with it. And all of this took time, weeks and months. So there they were for a full year. You can understand that obviously the miraculous provision of God was essential. Because the southern part of the Sinai is not noted for its fruitfulness. It's a desert. And so there in that uh, place, God had to provide sufficient water to maintain the lives of, of maybe two million people and all of their herds, and of course to continue to provide the manna. But of course, in addition to the manna, there had to be somehow food for all these herds. So they probably had to take the herds out around the plain for some distance to graze them. We find that as soon as they have made camp there at the base of the mountain, that God calls Moses up the mountain for the first time. And so Moses ascends this mountain to hear what God has to say. It's called the mountain of God. The mountain of God. It is the mountain of God, of course, because that is the touchstone, the point that God had chosen to minister to his people. There was nothing special about this pile of rock as opposed to any other pile of rock around this planet. But Moses climbed to commune with his God. Now there have been several mountains suggested as candidates for the mountain of God, for Mount Sinai. Some of them are actually in the same general area. And they're all more or less the same elevation. Uh, the one that is known as Jebel Musa, the mountain of Moses, is about 7,300 feet high. It's, it's a bare granite rock which rises up into the atmosphere there. And somewhat isolated, nearby mountains are not crowded right up against it. And it's quite an imposing uh, peak in many ways. But because there is no sign left there saying, you know, this is where Moses met God. There have been those who have quarreled or argued for other sites in that area, in other parts of the Sinai Peninsula, in fact. But tradition points to this particular mountain. And that tradition goes back more than two millennia. And to me, long-term tradition ought to have some great weight in what we determine to be probably the true site since there is nothing else that can prove that site or any other site or disprove this site, tradition would seem to have to be the primary factor in accepting this mountain. At the base of this particular mountain, Jebel Musa, on the south side is a very broad plain, a plain quite adequate for a tent city that could have housed as many as two million people. And from that plain, there's a clear view of the mountain, basically unobstructed from all over the plain. So it would be seemingly an ideal place for this event to take place. Well, God met Moses on the mountain for the first time. God had met Moses at this spot before, but not on the mountain, at the base of the mountain, in the burning bush. But now God calls him up onto the mountain. Where did God meet with Moses on the mountain? Well, we don't know, very possibly at the very top or at some other point along the mountain. At whatever was the spot, God gave him the message which we read there in verses 3 through 6 of this particular passage. 
God said to Moses, first of all, you witnessed what I did to the Egyptians. And what he was meaning by that was, you saw me bring the ten plagues upon the land of Egypt and virtually destroy the land. And then to wipe out the army of Egypt there in the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. Secondly, God said to Moses, and of course Moses is to tell the people this message, I bore you on eagles' wings. God brought them out of Egypt without having to fight a battle. And you remember when the enemy was upon them and the battle was nearly to be fought, God intervened and God destroyed the army of the Egyptians. And after that, God miraculously fed them. There in the wilderness where there was no food, God provided for them. Then finally God said, and I've brought you to myself. I've brought you to myself. God is saying, I have given to you faith through the demonstration of the many miraculous actions on your behalf. And I've brought you here to the mountain of God. So with these statements of reality, reminders of what God has done, he is saying that you know, therefore, that I am the true and the living God. Hence, if you will obey my word, if you will keep my covenant, you will be my people. God is here at the mountain calling Israel to be his people. Now, he had promised to Abraham a long time back that through him, God would raise up descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, and that through that nation, all of the world would be blessed. And God is here carrying them on to the next step, which is confrontation with the God of Israel. And he is pointing out the fact that since the whole earth is mine, it's all mine, God is saying, therefore I can bring about what I promise to you. And then he tells them what they are to be. You are to be, to me, a kingdom of priests. You're to be a holy and separated nation. They were not to be like the other nations of the world. And that's, of course, part of the reason why God, as, as he gave them the law and pronounced upon them how they were to serve him, he, he established their government as a theocracy. That is, God ruling through appointed, anointed individuals. They were not to be like the other nations of the world and have kings. But of course, later on, we discover Israel can't stand to be a different. It's just so reminiscent of the church. Church doesn't want to be separated and, and, and so different from the world. The church wants to be a part of the world. In fact, as you study church history, you discover the great institution of the church tries to, to become an integral part of the world and, and, in fact, rule the world if it could and actually would for a period of time. But God is calling his people to be wholly separate people in this world. And this is a commission. And this is a promise. And what is so interesting about this is that this is not unique to the understanding of believers down through history. Because this commission and this promise applies to the church as well as it applied to Israel. Because as Israel was to be God's witness in the ancient world. So the church has been God's witness in the world for the past 2,000 years and is to be until Christ returns. 
And as I thought about this, it brought to mind a passage that certainly must have come to your mind at the same uh, as we thought about this passage here about Israel being called as a kingdom of priests and so forth. Because Peter, as he was uh, talking to the early believers and writing to the early believers, uh, he wrote in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's kind of a historical statement of Israel. It's a historical statement of each of us individually. Israel was to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so are we to be in the world today. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Not as the United States, but as the church. As the men and women of God. And that's hard. Because it's not fun being considered different from others. If we turn back to the seventh verse of chapter 19 of Exodus, we read these words. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live." When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. You can picture Moses coming down off the mountain with the words of God echoing in his mind and marching to the very center of the camp and calling the elders to join with him there because he has a message from God. And there I think very solemnly, powerfully, faithfully, Moses recites God's message. And as we read that passage, you, I think you get a, a sense there that the elders quickly agreed. Oh yes, we'll obey the word of the Lord. They wanted to do God's will. I think their pledge of obedience was the product of honest, of honesty and integrity. 
I think they believed every word of what they said when they said, yes, we will obey the word of the Lord. However, I think it is as true for them as it has to be true for us that a pledge made in a moment of emotional high is easier said than kept. A pledge such as this to God has got to be renewed on a daily basis. Such a commitment is based on its constant renewal. Our, our commitment to truth and our commitment to obedience has got to be made over and over again. One of the things I know that all of you have discovered, as, as I have and most true believers have, and that is that obedience to God is neither natural nor easy. And of course we know why that's so. Because as John tells us, we, we struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we have kind of a, a triumvirate arrayed against us, within us, without us, around us, is the enemy. And there's no way that a promise once made is a promise going to be always kept unless that promise is renewed as we walk day by day with God. And so they would discover. And that's why we have this constant repetition as you go through the, the Old Testament. This, this constant repetition of Israel saying, yes, we'll obey God, and then they walk away from God, and God brings, brings discipline on them, and then they, they repent, and they return back to God, and then they walk away from God, and it sounds like a yo-yo, because it tends to be human characteristic to live that way. And it's only those, I guess, that can arrive at that place where every day they recommit themselves, sort of the Brother Lawrence effect, I suppose, where... Uh, you're constantly in communion with God and in everything that you do, you know, praying to God while you wash pots and pans, as he did. Whatever it is that we do must become sacred unto him. For us to be true reflectors of the image of Christ, the Holy Spirit of the living God has got to penetrate every aspect of our being. He's got to indwell us. He's got to have access to every part of who we are. Our minds, our hearts, our personalities, our attitudes, whatever. Uh, however we want to compartmentalize a human being. God has, God's Spirit's got to have access to it all uh, for us in, in order to be the, the reflectors of Christ to the people around us that he wants us to be. When Jesus said in that famous off-quoted passage at the end of Matthew, uh, you shall be my witnesses. He was not saying, now go out and try to be them. Be that. He said, that's what you're going to be. And that reflection of Christ's image is, is that witness in the world today. We had at uh, chapel this past week, on Friday, a group from, I mean, a couple of individuals from YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and they made a presentation on the Islamic world because we've been going through the Islamic month of Ramadan, their great month of uh, fasting, uh, where they fast all day long from sunrise to sunset throughout the entire month as a sacrifice to their God, Allah. The individual uh, was pointing out the fact, a man who apparently had lived in India for quite a while and, and served uh, amongst the Mohammedans there, Muslims there, that your words of testimony mean nothing unless your life truly reflects the faith that you proclaim. 
he mentioned that something as simple as where you put your Bible really makes a big difference to them. If you put your Bible in such a way that it might be perceived as considered to be an ordinary book, like you put it on the ground, to them they would never put the Koran on the ground. It's a holy book. And, and to them it's exalted. And if we don't consider our book holy enough to keep it off the ground and not to sit on it, you know, not to use it for something to sit on or, you know, in some way show dishonor or disrespect to it, if we show such disrespect, then they have no time for our witness. Our witness means nothing. And so it seems that how we live our lives is the primary, preeminent witness to the world. Our words have some meaning, but that meaning is much less than the life we live. Because, you know, we always hear the phrase that it's not your talk, it's your walk. We, we kind of tend to just go over that a little bit lightly sometimes maybe, or maybe I have at least, and to not recognize that it's walk with a capital W and talk with a small t that makes a difference in this world today. And that is, of course, what God is driving at here as he is preparing Israel to meet him. It seems that four factors play a major role in transforming a person into a truly obedient man or woman of God. And those factors are the ones you hear about all the time. Commitment to prayer. Commitment to the study of the Word of God. How many Christians never study the Word? A verse for a day keeps the devil away. I think not. <laughs> it takes more than a verse a day. I think it takes study of the Word, a probing to the depths of the Word, and absorbing the essential meaning of the Word, and understanding what God is saying and who God is. That's the purpose of the Word. We can't know God if we don't study His Word. Commitment to the fellowship with God's people, that's why being a hermit, Going off and live in a monastery all by yourself someplace, or I guess if you live in a monastery, you're not a hermit, but uh, being a hermit, let's say, uh, that's, that's, that's not commitment to the fellowship of God's people. We're not put here just to enjoy ourselves, even if we're enjoying ourselves and God. We're to do it in the framework of others of God's people. And then lastly, commitment to service within the body of Christ, whatever that service is that God may call us to do. We're here to serve. And as I'm going to be reading in a moment from the first, uh, from the uh, 12th chapter of Romans, God has gifted every single one of us. In some way, God has gifted every single one of us. Not a one of us in this room does not have a gift from God. They are not the same gift. Each of us has, we may have different gifts, but each has a gift for service within God's kingdom. I think one of the best New Testament descriptions that kind of uh, builds on the basis of what God is striving to do here for his people comes from the 12th chapter of Romans. And as I was looking at that chapter, I was thinking, well, which of these verses should we emphasize? And I thought, well, I can't really leave any of it out. This is one of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture. If one wants to know what it means to live the Christian life, you won't find a better short description than this chapter. 
It's a very convicting chapter. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, or right, pleasing, and mature, if you will. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. What does that mean? It means we are mutually responsible for each other. We can't just say, okay, well, Joe Blow's having a problem. That's his problem, not my problem. It's my problem too, if he's a member of this body. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And then from 9 to 21, we have a statement of what the characteristics ought to be of the true believer of God. And if we can read through all these verses and say, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, all the way down the line, then we've got the wool pulled over our eyes somewhere. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. I mean, does this fly against our natural human characteristic or what? I mean, this is like sandpaper. Coarse sandpaper. This is not the fine stuff. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if, you're, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Hmm. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is no way on planet Earth that you or I can live according to this passage, save in the power of the Spirit of the living God. The only way it can happen. And God will not enable us to do this unless we are open channels. If we're not committed to prayer and committed to the study of, God, of God's Word and committed to His fellowship and to His service, this can't happen. can't happen. Because God doesn't take us and hogtie us and do these things to us. He wants us to willingly cooperate with what He wants to do in our lives. It's a really, really difficult passage to be able to check it off and say, yep, that's me, yep, that's me, yep, that's me. It's easier to say, oh Lord, how can I have love without hypocrisy? How can I abhor what is evil and cling to that which is good? You know, if we really, really abhorred that which was evil, there are a lot of things we wouldn't allow into our lives and into our homes. We'd probably throw the television set right out the door, you know? Because although there's a lot of good stuff, there's an awful lot of stuff that isn't any good on there. And, you know, you, you could write down the line here and be real <laughs> convicting or convicted uh, as we go through that particular passage. And, and as we think about the people of Israel there at the base of Mount Sinai, they won't have all this spelled out to them intricately here as Paul has given it. But they will get the rudiments of it as God gives to them the Ten Commandments and then as he fills it out with all of the rest of the laws and, and exhortations which you find in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. God has given to us the extreme blessing of living towards the end of history and experiencing the fullness of his revelation. We not only have what God gave to Moses to give to the people of Mount Sinai, but we have the words of Jesus, the promised Messiah. And we have the words of Paul that Jesus gave to Paul to, to fill out the gospel of Christ. And we have the book of Revelation that God gave to Patmos, I mean to John on the Isle of Patmos, uh, at the end of the first century, kind of giving him a glimpse of how it's all going to come to an end. As some say, from generation to revolution. <laughs> I like from paradise lost to paradise regained, you know. As such, we have greater responsibility. Uh, there, is, there is a passage that, that speaks about um, God winking at some of what took place prior to the giving of the law. That doesn't mean God ignored sin. It means that God understood that the people then didn't have the revelation that we have. And therefore their responsibility was at a lower level. God's grace was still needed for their redemption, even as it is for ours. But our responsibility is greater. We may not like that, but that's the way it is. Greater opportunity requires greater responsibility. In the 19th chapter of Exodus, we discover in verse 9 that Moses reported the commitment of God's people to the Lord. Now, Moses certainly knew that God already knew, but he made a formal report to God of what the people had said. 
that they would obey the word of the Lord. The Lord informed Moses then that he was going to make Moses' words credible in the ears of his people. And he was going to do that by appearing in a form that they could see, a thick, dark cloud, and then speaking forth from that cloud in the hearing of the people so that they would, knew, so they would know that God was truly communing with his servant Moses. And that Moses wasn't just making this up. Interesting passage. It says that God would do this so that they would believe in Moses forever. <laughs> that almost sounds like a statement of deity. You know, believe in Moses forever. And of course, what he was meaning by that was that they would believe that the words that Moses was giving to them were the eternal words of God himself. Even Jesus in the New Testament time would refer to the words of Moses. Of course, everyone understood that the words of Moses were God's words that had been given through Moses. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, were penned by Moses. They were penned by Moses, but they were not authored by Moses. God is the author. Moses was the penman. And somehow God used a flawed human being to present his inerrant word to the world. How do we figure that one out? Well, they've been quibbling about that for 2,000 years or more. Liberal scholars have solved it by simply refusing to believe that the word is inerrant. To them, the word of God is error-prone. The Bible is error-prone, and they will try to show you inconsistencies in the Bible to prove that it is error-prone. And to many of the liberal scholars, the best that you can say is that inside this book are the words of God somewhere, the basic spiritual principles that are pretty good to, to pay attention to. The worst that will be said is that it is simply another work of human literature to be thought of along with Shakespeare and Homer and Virgil and other great works of literature through history. But if that's the attitude that a Christian has, his faith is going to be mighty shallow. And the Word of God is not going to be the light and the life it needs to be because we have to believe in this book as being the inerrant Word of God. That God is not somehow so hogtied that God can't keep His Word and make it inerrant in spite of the fact He's using flawed human beings to present it. It becomes a matter of faith. We always can't prove things scientifically. We can't come to the point where we absolutely understand everything, but there are many things we have to accept by faith. It's sort of like going back and saying, well, how, how do I believe in a devil, for example? I mean, why would God create a devil? And if God creates a Lucifer and Lucifer turns bad, God knows he's going to turn bad, and therefore God is ultimately the author of evil. You know, that kind of logic is sometimes given. We have to come to the place where we can say we do not understand how a perfect being like Lucifer can become a fallen angel, but we have to believe that is true because it is, we're told that in the Word of God. There are some things that defy human logic, human reason. And if there were not things like that, we would have a very little God. 
a God that's no bigger than Isis of the Egyptians or Marduk of the Babylonians or Baal of the Phoenicians. I think an important passage for us to understand here in this 19th chapter, because it can be misinterpreted, is the passage from the 10th verse to the 15th verse. The instructions that God there gives to Moses have to do with outward bodily acts, but the thrust is to the heart. God wanted Israel to be reverent and submissive. He wanted them to understand that the God of Israel is not like the God of the Egyptians or the gods of the Egyptians or the gods of the people they're going to meet along the way. He is not like the gods of Amalek. He will not be like the gods of Edom or Moab or, or the Ammonites or all the Canaanite peoples. He is a different God from those gods. He is not a God of this world. He's a God above and beyond this world, a transcendent God. Contact with God requires consecration and separation. Consecration and separation. Israel needed to understand this. And you know, there is a tendency within the American church because of our kind of laid-back attitude to almost approach God with a business-as-usual attitude. And that's exactly what God is driving at here. I will accept no business-as-usual attitude from my people. Nor would the attitude be, well, anything is good enough for God. That is not acceptable either. And I think um, sometimes we need to be really careful that we downplay reverence for God. Downplaying reverence for God is a very dangerous thing. We need to be sure that in our attitude towards God, in our, in our meeting before God, in our singing to God, in all the things that we do, that there is a great reverence, submission, and consecration. He wanted them to fear God. God wanted them to fear Him, not because He loved to see people cowering. That was not the point at all but because he wanted them to understand who he was. It's his nature to be a consuming fire. God cannot stand the sight of sin. It evaporates in his presence along with those who are sinners, so to speak. I mean, he's defending them from whom he really is. Flippancy, apathy. Irreverence will not stand in God's presence. They'll just whoosh, be destroyed, cannot survive. And so the Israelites are commanded to do four things. God tells them that they're to wash their bodies, wash their clothes, stay off the mountain, and abstain from sexual intercourse for a period of time. Now the purpose of these commands was not to make them acceptable to God. We're not acceptable to God simply because we wash our clothes and wash our bodies and, you know, do these things here. Because there's nothing innately sinful about having dirty clothes. There's not anything innately sinful about not having had a bath lately. There is nothing innately sinful about sexual intercourse with your spouse. The purpose of it all was to focus their minds on God and get their minds off the mundane things of daily life. To recognize 
that God was a holy God. To create an understanding that God was worthy of every effort and sacrifice we might make on His behalf. It's sort of like the enigma of fasting. What in the world difference does it make in our prayers whether we fast or not? And this is a big argument amongst many. The point is that God is making to the people that they were to understand that outward cleanliness simply represented the need for a clean heart. That you can't go before God just kind of come as you are any old time you want with a flippant, irreverent, apathetic attitude. Our attitude of heart is everything. And somehow the attitude of our heart is reflected in the appearance of, of our bodies and how we live and how we act. I have to admit right here that I am a little bothered by the fact that people don't seem to mind here in this city of Reading to come into church service wearing what I feel are very inappropriate clothes. Things that to me so show no sign of reverence for God at all or any concern for other people who might be offended by that. Scripture teaches us that we are to avoid offending one another. Now, obviously, somebody can be offended at anything. You're wearing blue. I hate blue. You're offending me. No, but there are things that have a far deeper meaning than, you know, whether you like a particular color or not. And, and some of these have direct sexual overtones. And I think that uh, uh, we have a problem in the church today. And, and part of that reflects, I think, a lack of reverence of God and who he is and, and of God's people. And I, I think that really needs to be dealt with. And I think if God comes and if revival really comes, those things will change because people will be convicted in their own hearts. You go out on the mission field and, and you discover that as the gospel really penetrates these pagan tribes, they don't have to be told to put clothes on. They do it because their sense of modesty has changed from what it was before. It's those who have gone in to missionize and, and tried to force clothing on people before they bring the conversion of their hearts, or, or there is no real conversion of heart because it's a modernistic church approach to the whole thing that, that creates all this, this struggle and argument. There are, there are certain things that we do in the physical body that reflect the character of our relationship with God. And I'm afraid that we have too much of a flippant, laid-back attitude towards God in many circles in our churches in America today. And I've seen that more here in Reading than in some other places, I think. Maybe it's because we're kind of a country town and, and everybody thinks that it's just fine to just come as you are. And, you know, a certain degree that's probably true, but I think there's a, there's a line. There's a line that shouldn't be crossed. And I think it's lack of teaching, for one thing. They were also to stay off the mountain because, you see, to touch the mountain was to trivialize God. Oh, let's see what the mountain's like. It's quivering. Let's see. Oh. I mean, we're dealing with a holy, awesome God here. God was not to be the subject of somebody's curiosity or, 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 or God just some kind of a mundane event. They were to hold God in absolute awe. I think today we... I guess I'll vent a pet peeve here. I love a lot of the courses we sing today, but our neglect 
of some of the great hymns of the church, I think, strips us of some of the, some of the awesome uh, teaching of who God is. I mean, there are some mighty hymns of the church which, which describe God in his, in his great glory and majesty and power, which is lost in some of these highly repetitious choruses, many of whom are great, you know, God, we adore you, and, and so forth. But we, we need not to do the one to the neglect to the other. I feel there should be a balance. That's a pet peeve I have today that seems to be a problem that the church faces. And I think it's got to change if we want more mature people in our church, more people who have understanding of where the church has been and where it, it's going and who God is. Well, we don't know who God is unless we study His Word and, and, and the people of the past tell us who God has been to them in His might and His power and His glory. We, we almost make God into our buddy. God is a dear friend, but He is almighty, holy, perfect God. We wouldn't dare walk into His presence without having been totally transformed by the blood of Christ and washed in the blood of the Lamb, or we'd be vaporized. Israel was to know that a great gulf separated them from God. And that gulf can only be bridged by repentance, by faith and obedience. And so Moses commands his people, prepare to meet thy God. And so they would. And Next Sunday, I, I want to dwell just a little bit on this next passage because, you know, I, I think we can pass right over it and not see the mighty thing that happened there that day as Israel came out to witness God coming down on Mount Sinai. And I think that encounter was every bit as important to Israel as the day of Pentecost was to the church. And I think there's a tremendous parallelism between this meeting between Israel and God at Sinai and the church at Pentecost.